You're listening to a news report podcast from TheBody.com, the internet's most comprehensive HIV-AIDS resource. Welcome to a breaking HIV-AIDS news report. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of The Body. On December 1, 2007, new HIV treatment guidelines were released by the U.S. government. This year, the guidelines will come out in two parts. The biggest section was just released, and the second section, containing the panel's HIV medication recommendations, is expected to be released in January of 2008. The guidelines have become the HIV treatment bible for healthcare providers in the United States. They contain a wide range of recommendations, including when a person should start taking HIV medications, what they should start with, and what to do when someone has developed a lot of HIV drug resistance. The guidelines are updated about once or twice a year by a panel of 35 experts. The panel consists of HIV doctors, researchers, and even a few people living with HIV. My guest today, Dr. Joel Gallant, is not only one of the top clinicians and researchers in the United States, he's a guideline panel member. Dr. Gallant is a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. He's here to talk with us about the most important changes to the guidelines. Welcome, Dr. Gallant. Thank you, Bonnie. Let's start with the question of when to start treatment. Do the updated guidelines include any new recommendations? This is probably the biggest um, and most important change in this revision. There's been a lot of evidence, especially from some cohort studies, suggesting that we really should be treating HIV a little earlier than we have been. And the previous guidelines said that we should be treating people with CD4 cells below 200 and that we should consider treatment in the 200 to 350 range. So the new guidelines have strengthened that a bit, and now they say that we should be treating everybody who has a CD4 count below 350, and of course anybody with AIDS or symptoms from HIV infection. But for the most part, the new threshold is 350. They also say that there are a group of people who should be treated regardless of CD4 count, so even with a higher CD4 count. That would, of course, include pregnant women, and that's nothing new. People who have HIVAN, which is uh, HIV-associated nephropathy, the the kidney disease that can be caused by HIV. People who have HIV as well as hepatitis B who need treatment for hepatitis B. And the reason for that is because the treatment for hepatitis B is easier and more effective if you're using HIV drugs, specifically tenofovir, viriad, plus either um, 3TC or FTC, so in most cases uh, some combination that includes Truvada, because those drugs treat both HIV and hepatitis B, but you can't use Truvada unless it's in a a full combination uh, for HIV, otherwise you'd get resistance. So in other words, it's a lot easier to treat both HIV and hepatitis B than it is to treat hepatitis B alone. And so for that reason, the panel recommends that if you're going to be treated for hep B, you might as well just treat both. Then they point out that even above 350, you know, there may be benefits to therapy. And uh, the optimal time to start above that cutoff isn't really known. So, you know, they go into detail about why in some patients with higher CD4 counts, you know, you might consider it. Can you give me some examples do you recall? So, for example, somebody who's in a, a, a partner whose partner is HIV negative, um, and there's concern about transmission of HIV from one one person to the other. You know, you might consider that uh, although the, the infected person doesn't necessarily need therapy from his own point of view, it may reduce the risk of transmission by uh, 
by treating. So that would be an example. I think another example would be um, a very high viral load, although they don't they don't specifically uh, mention what the what what the threshold would be, or somebody whose CD4 count is falling rapidly, even though it's still above 350. Those would be a few examples. But you know you have to weigh the risks and benefits. Um, obviously, one of the reasons that we are treating earlier now is because the risks have decreased. The drugs are easier and, and safer and better tolerated, but they're not completely without risk. So you know you have to. Be, uh, be aware of that balance if you're thinking about starting very early. Uh -huh. um, I, I thought, uh, it, at what point was there the recommendation that all pregnant patients had to be pa had to be treated for from? I thought there was interruption after pregnancy. Oh well, it doesn't say that you can't interrupt okay. therapy okay. Yeah, afterwards. Um, that's so really that pregnancy issue hasn't changed very much. It's just saying that you know pregnant women should be treated to avoid perinatal transmission regardless of. Um, CD4. Now, of course, if if a woman gives birth and her viral load is undetectable and she doesn't have any side effects to the therapy, she she may decide just to stay on therapy, even though she didn't necessarily need it when she started. And that's just a decision that has to you know be made between the the woman and her and her clinician. But someone like that would I know there's a whole section about treatment interruption in the guidelines. But someone like that would would a treatment in, would that be called a treatment interruption if she started it while she was pregnant and then had the baby and then decided not to continue? Well, yeah, it's a treatment interruption of sorts. You know, it's a specific type, one that is is uh, generally considered acceptable, whereas most other types of treatment interruption are not. But it's still a treatment interruption, mm -hmm. and, and you know, you got to wonder whether. And I'm not speaking about guidelines here. I'm just speaking from personal viewpoint. You, you know, you have to wonder if, given the data we have about interrupting treatment from the SMART study, whether there could be some downside to interrupting after delivery. Uh, and it's just something I would I would talk over with the uh, the woman after she delivered about, you know, how she was doing on therapy. If she was doing great and didn't have any side effects and was having having a good response, you know, I would talk to her about one option, just being to stay on therapy. And, and I guess similarly with someone co-infected with hepatitis B. Well, hepatitis B, yeah, definitely that. Once they there, clear, there you would generally treat permanently because there's this risk of. Hepatitis flare, if you stop therapy that's effective against hepatitis B. So for most people, once they start, they're going to stay on. Okay. Anything um, else um, in terms of the treatment of man uh, the management of treatment experience patients? Um, what were were there just a listing of new drugs? Yeah, or? It's mainly to talk about the new uh, the new drugs, Salcentri or Maraviroc, um, Isentris or Raltegravir, and then Etravirine is coming out hopefully hopefully in January. So this has been a you know really important year for new drugs. I think we've talked about this in previous interviews. Um, and the guidelines now, you know, discuss the data on those drugs and talk about, um, you know, how they can be used in, in treatment experience patients. And just to remind everybody that pre a previous version of the guidelines had changed the, the goal of therapy um, so that it now says the goal of therapy for everybody is uh, undetectable viral load of less than 50, even for treatment experience patients. And the reason for that is because of all these new drugs, not only the three that I mentioned, but... Um, Resista, Aptivus, and uh, Fusion. So it's now much easier to achieve full suppression, even in people with a lot of resistance. I noticed that in the guidelines, it used to say, um, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. 
And here, for treatment experienced patients, the, the guidelines say, well, if there's some problem, you know, maybe you could switch, meaning there's a lot more leeway now because there's so, so many choices. Yeah. But, and, of course, like you say, you said if there's some problem, and if there's a problem, then it may be broke. So um, I, I think it makes a lot of sense um, to um, consider drug switches in people who are, you know, not completely satisfied with the regimen they're on because of either you know, complexity or toxicity or side effects, um, you know, given the, the choices, as long as that's, that decision is made carefully and the switch is a good one, then it, 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 I think it makes sense to, to consider those kind of switches. Okay. For, for many years, the guidelines were a step behind what the savviest HIV specialists were doing. Do you think the guidelines have caught up to practice? I think there'll always be potential for it to them to be a step behind true HIV experts because, you know, you got to figure, first of all, the, the panel relies on solid clinical data. And, you know, sometimes um, expert physicians are kind of aware of data that are emerging before they're published or before they're presented and maybe acting on, on those data. And then you've got to figure that the panel has to convene and has to write the guidelines, has to develop agreement for guidelines. So, you know, there can be a delay. So I, I would say they're, they're, they change pretty rapidly, and I think they change, they're very responsive to new data, but, but there will always be the potential for an, uh, an expert with real good knowledge of the data to be, you know, a step ahead. Mm-hmm. Now, th- that being said, you know, sometimes people who are uh, acting on the most recent data can be wrong. And, and we've all seen, you know, there have been examples where things that seemed like a good idea um, turned out not to be such a good idea. So uh, there is an argument for, you know, going a little bit slowly with new data. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, could we uh, go through some of the major changes step by step? Sure. Um, and I guess the first, I think, just on the, they had, there's a what's new document included in the guidelines. Yeah. And, and I, the first thing in that list was the drug resistance testing um, recommendation. Yeah, the, the, the main difference there, the guidelines have, have uh, in the past, have recommended that everybody get baseline resistance testing before treatment. But in the past, they um, sort of hedged on it and said that you should get a baseline resistance test if you're about to start therapy. And I think a lot of people recognize that that may not be the best approach, that we know that the best time to get a resistance test is when you're first diagnosed as soon as possible after infection because it's more accurate. So the new uh, guidelines now say that you should get a resistance test as soon as you find out you're HIV positive, whether or even if you're not going to be starting therapy right away, and that you should just save those the, the results of those uh, that resistance test and then consider it. Uh, consider the results when it's time for you to start. And I think we all agree that that probably makes a lot more sense because that way you get the most accurate test possible. Uh, was there a fear that the genotype would tell you little about someone who was infected 10 years before they entered care? Like the person could have archived resistance, but it wouldn't show up by the time they entered in care? Well, that's exactly the concern, that the longer you wait, the more likely you are to miss something. And there's not much we can do about it. If somebody gets diagnosed 10 years after they're infected, they're, you know, all you can do is get the test and just understand that it may not be, it may not be um, reflective of the true resistance profile. Um, and there's not much you can do about that right now. There are, are people working on more sensitive uh, resistance tests that could look for uh, archived resistance or resistance present in smaller quantities. But right now, there's, those tests aren't commercially available. So it's just an argument, I think, for making sure that people get tested 
uh, and diagnosed early and then that the resistance test be performed. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the, I guess the next um, uh, new thing in this document is the tropism assay. Right, and of course that that's avail that um, recommendation came out because of the approval of a cell sentry or Moravarok, which is the new CCR5 inhibitor. And really, um, this is a unique drug in the sense that you really have to do this test before you can use it. If you use cell sentry and your virus turns out to get into the cell using uh, the CXCR4 co-receptor, then it's not going to work. So you need to do this tropism assay to find out if your virus is what we call R5 tropic, meaning that it uses the CCR5 co-receptor. And if you have pure R5 tropic virus, then this drug is much more likely to work. So it, it's the tropism assay is recommended for anybody who's about to start cell sentry, and it could be also considered for people who fail cell sentry to find out whether they failed due to a tropism shift or to some other reason. One curiosity, I guess, about recommendations in the DHSS guidelines is that something could be recommended, but insurance or ADAPT or clinics will not have it available in their clinic because it's too expensive. I don't know if that's still true about this, this test. Well, this would be a good example because this is a very expensive test. It's almost $2,000. So more than, more than even a phenosense, uh, uh, phenotype assay. And, you know, many clinics are not doing phenotype assays. So it's unclear what's going to happen um, with this test because just, just the fact that it's in the guidelines doesn't necessarily mean there's a way to pay for it. The guidelines don't you know, they're in a way you could say they're kind of an unfunded mandate. So it's it's going to depend on, in, you know, individual clinics, individual states, you know, what kind of Ryan White issues they have, um, you know, what their uh, percentage of, of people with private insurance is, et cetera. You could certainly use this as an argument, you know, if, if a private insurer doesn't want to pay for it. Um, and I would also add that um, Monogram, which does the test, does have a patient assistance program, although I don't have all the details uh, with me. If, if uh, in a situation where a patient has no way to pay, it doesn't necessarily mean they can't get this test done. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, I guess the next test that, that – is this – I think it's been – it's the first time it's mentioned in the guidelines, the right. HLA? Yeah, HLA B5701. This test has been around for a little while, but recently, especially in, in, at the Sydney meeting um, in, the, in summer, our summer, there was some really good data showing that the HLA B5701 test is a, a very good test for predicting whether you're going to get um, the hypersensitivity reaction to uh, Zyogen or Abacavir. Um, if the test is positive, you're very likely to have this reaction and you shouldn't take the drug. If the test is negative, you're very unlikely to have the reaction. It's not, not impossible, but it's much less likely. And so it's now recommended that anyone who's going to start a Bacavir, and that would include uh, Ziogen, Trizavir, Epsicom, or Cavexa, lots of names for the same drug or drug combination. Anybody who's going to take that should get this test done first. And if it's positive, you should not take the drug, and it should be recorded as an Abacavir allergy in your record. If it's negative, then you can go ahead and take the drug and just be aware that there is still a very small chance of having the uh, hypersensitivity reaction. This test, unlike the tropism assay, is not very expensive, and so hopefully this won't be a, a major uh, uh, problem for most clinics. Uh -huh. So is it, would you say it's available mostly you know, in most clinics today? Or? Well, yeah, it's available through the standard commercial labs like LabCorp and Quest, which you know, a lot of the clinics are using. So, um, and then 
it can be done in other labs as well. So it, you know, it's it's a pretty available test right now. Uh -huh. But there's no point of taking the test if you already have taken abacavir. Yeah, if you've taken abacavir and you've tolerated it, or if you're taking it now and you're doing well, there's no reason to do the test because you've already shown that you're not hypersensitive to it. And if you're not going to use abacavir, there's probably no reason to do the test. So this, the the, the guidelines panel is recommending that this test be specifically used if you're going to start a back of ear. And just like you do a tropism assay if you're going to start the um, cell sentry. Mm -hmm. okay. So it's not a test that everybody needs to get. Uh -huh. And people can't develop hypersensitivity to back of ear while they're on it. Well, you do develop it while you're on it, but it all, it's something that occurs within the first few weeks of therapy. And, and um, if you get through those first few weeks, it's, you're not likely to have this problem. So to sum up, what is the biggest difference between the new HIV treatment guidelines and the old guidelines? I think for me, the, the biggest uh, change here, even though it may seem like a subtle one, is the strengthening of the recommendation for when to start and really saying that 350 is, is now the new threshold. Uh -huh. and, and, and also just giving more leeway for earlier treatment. You know, the previous guidelines said, basically, if your CD4 is above 350, don't treat. And and the guidelines no longer say don't treat about anybody. They just say, you know, you could consider treatment, um, but they don't really come out and say that there's a type of patient that should not be treated. Uh -huh. And does it look like there's going to be like some more upward? I mean, are, are there any clinical studies starting that will be looking particularly at when to start? Well, there are attempts to start a study. I think it's called the START study, in fact. Um, which will be a large randomized trial comparing earlier therapy to, you know, more standard uh, initiation of therapy. It's kind of controversial. Some people don't think we need that sort of a study. They think it's expensive and it's going to take years to get the results, and we already sort of know. Um, other people think that the data we have so far are not really definitive because they come from observational studies instead of clinical trials. So there's this debate, but if the trial does get funded, and if it does enroll patients, you know, it's going to be years before we have the results, and we can't really sit around and wait for those results. So I think it's appropriate that we act now based on the, the data we have, even if the data are not perfect. Um, and I think, I think if you just kind of look at the, the risk-benefit ratio of therapy, it's, it's increasingly the benefits are outweighing the risks for a lot of people. Um, the, the risks have gone down, the evidence of benefit goes up, and... Um, for that reason, we're becoming a little more aggressive. Thank you very much, Dr. Gallant, for taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure, Bonnie. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. This has been a news report podcast from TheBody.com. Be sure to check in at TheBody.com frequently for the latest news and information on HIV, including in-depth interviews with HIV-positive people, researchers, and healthcare professionals. <laughs>